Our scripture this morning. Well, good morning. We are continuing through the book of Psalms. Uh, One quick note of uh, side note. Um, uh, We got back, my family and I, we got back from Duluth, which was your treat as a church. That is our pastor appreciation from last October. Um, But when you said Duluth, nobody wants to go to Duluth in December. Sorry. I mean, maybe. I mean, it's got its own beauty, but I, yeah, I don't want to hike in snow. So, and we love hiking. So we went there on Thursday, came back last night. Um, It was relaxing. It was quiet. It was beautiful. Um, and, uh, and so thank you very much for that chance to be able to get away and kind of rejuvenate and get some energy back before coming back to the concrete forest and uh, the craziness of life as it is. Um, and so thank you so much. That was a, it was a huge blessing for us as a family, um, and we so much, so much appreciate it and feel your appreciation for it. Um, this psalm, little disclaimer, First of all, it's very straightforward. It's a, it's a psalm of wisdom, um, but it is also, um, uh, how do you say, it is not a psalm against money. Okay, so don't go social on this, right? Like this is God saying that we should never have any money. Um, uh, it does not raise up the, the, the poor, and it does not raise up the rich. That is not the focus of this psalm. So when we see sometimes ha- uh, wealth and riches and abundance, we kind of go, oh, that's God speaking against rich- riches, which doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture because then God gave Abraham and Isaac and Jacob all of this wealth. Job was a wealthy man. There's many people within um, Nicodemus in the New Testament who helped bury Christ, became a believer. He was a wealthy man. So was Joseph of Arimathea. So to just make this blanket statement to say this is about wealth and that if you're wealthy, you are sinful and you're going to hell is wrong. This actually isn't about how much money you have or how little money you have. There's something much deeper going on here. And it has not as much to do with wealth as one would think. Okay, so he starts this psalm, the psalmist does, in this way. All right, listen up. Everybody listen up. What I'm about to say to you is meant for everyone, no matter your background, no matter your income, no matter whether you're single or you're married or widowed. What you are about to hear are words that only the foolish would ignore. And you're not foolish, right? Are you ready to hear this? Profound words. Every one of you are going to die someday. But that's what he does. That's the first stanza. These are his opening words. He builds up the tension in only four verses and then drops this heavy truth that none of us can afford to ignore. But ultimately, many inhabitants of this world, probably including us, um, we do ignore them to our own harm. And in 20 verses, the psalmist proclaims that there are really two types of people in this world. Not wealthy and poor. Not educated and uneducated. The wise and the foolish. But both the wise and the foolish, in the end, will die. 
And whatever they gained here on earth is going to stay here on earth. Hence the title of my message, The Emptiness of the Grave. Because the grave, our grave, is an empty place. So don't, don't think of like the resurrection. That's, that's Easter. You know, don't think that. Okay? Our grave is empty when we are resting in it. Because everybody's pomp, he says, in the end will end. If we were to take an honest look, we would be hard-pressed to say that wealth, prosperity, and the material possessions have no influence on our Western culture. Or even us. We want, we want high quality. We want it to last long. We like good, nice stuff. We're going to spend our money on this or on that. The abundance of riches, wealth, and influence can deceive one to think that this is all that there is. Okay, so don't hear me saying that to pursue wealth, to pursue riches, or to have those or be given those by God is sinful in any way. That is not what the psalmist is saying. The question is, where are they on your priority list of life? Because the riches and wealth and influence We think that's all there is, or many think that that's all there is, that the fulfilling of personal desires, however they are accumulated, are worth the cost. I want my best life now. That's that attitude. But there's a reality which always makes itself known. Every one of us, whether rich or poor, PhD educated, or a preschooler, kids, you're not going to like to hear this, and you're going to forget this, but one day you're going to remember this. Kids, listen up. The day will come when you will die. The day will come when your parents will die. The day will come when your grandparents will pass away from this earth. We are mortal. We will not live forever. Such a downer. Now your parents are going to have wonderful conversations at lunch today, right? But that's the reality of it. We have to address the fact that we are mortal people. Every one of us will face the grave. You can try to avoid it. You can get plastic surgery. You can go to the, to the doctor so often, but let's be honest, there are times where the doctors are like, I, I have no idea, because they're human. They don't know everything. And the day will come, no matter how much medicine you're taking, no matter how much plastic surgery you have, no, much, no matter how much you pray, the day's going to come that either you're going to die, and the only way you can avoid the grave is if Jesus comes again. Those are the two realities. But we have to understand that more than likely, and we pray Christ is going to come, right? Like right now, whoo, that would be awesome. That would be great. We praise God, and we don't need to listen to Mark anymore. I'm going to see Jesus face to face. Yay! But the reality is, is more than likely, we're going to face the grave. We have to face that. And none of what we accumulated is going to join us in that death. My soul will one day pass on to the spiritual world and any what the psalmist calls pomp, any honor, any precious thing that we've received in this world will either be passed on to others or it will decay like dust, forgotten with only a few, within a few generations. How many people remember why Maple Grove is called Maple Grove? Maybe maybe you can look it up. When was it started? Who started this city? Or any city? 
they name countries it says after themselves and nobody remembers that four generations five generations ten generations later everyone's pomp in the end will end and that's not being said by the psalmist to create depression in us to suddenly get us all down like oh Great, Mark, thanks. I had a really hard week this week. Yeah, you might have been on vacation, but I wasn't. I want something uplifting. We're getting there. But as Christians, we have to realize, as human beings, we have to realize the day will come when we will meet the grave. We will be in the grave. And so what are we to do? What is to be done? And this is the psalmist's cry to God's people. He cries, what do you fear? What do you fear? We need to look deep within ourselves. What do we fear? Do we fear times of trouble? Do we fear that we won't make enough money? Do we fear the troubles of this world where the wicked reign and they fill their own pockets? Or perhaps maybe a better question would be is who should we fear? Should we fear this world? Should we fear those who are in it? Or do we fear God? And thankfully, the Bible plainly tells us the answer to that. Proverbs 1, 7, a famous passage, famous verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, or the beginning of discernment, or the beginning of understanding is another way to translate that. Do we desire to be discerning? Do we desire to be understanding? Then, then it starts with fearing the Lord, not the troubles of this world. But what does it mean to fear the Lord? And how does this psalm fit into this whole picture? Well, though it's not specifically stated, Psalm 49 is actually about the holiness of God. In the heavenly throne room sits the Lord, day and night. It is proclaimed before him, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That is the God that we worship. He's not only a holy God. He's not only a holy, holy God. He is a holy, holy, holy God. Like you can't get past it. Thrice holy. I've been waiting all week to say that word. Thrice holy. There is nothing. There is no one who is like him. He is perfect in all his ways. He is set apart as the only one worthy of our worship and our glory and our honor. But God's holiness isn't limited to the New Testament. In Leviticus, Aaron and his sons were consecrated. This is what we looked at a few weeks ago when they put blood on his earlobe and on his thumb, right thumb and his right toe. And they talked about his entire being, Aaron as the high priest, as holy, so then he can serve before the Lord, to offer sacrifices for the people before the Lord. Well, Aaron and his sons, they're consecrated, they're set apart from the rest of the people of Israel in order to enter God's presence in the Holy of Holies. But being sinful humans, they could not, uh, they could do nothing in and of themselves to make them holy. Something had to happen. And then, so over an eight-day period, there were multiple sacrifices of bulls, goats, and the like, that were offered to God in order to consecrate Aaron and his sons. And so finally, Aaron could 
enter God's presence, but they were not consecrated or made holy. If they were not uh, consecrated or made holy, God would take their life from them. Leviticus 8.35, do these things or I will take your life from you. You will die. Why? Because you are sinful and a holy, holy, holy God cannot have sin in his presence. That's a problem. How do you offer sacrifice for the people? Well, Aaron then is consecrated. He is made holy by God through the sacrifices. So fearing the Lord, in essence, fearing his holiness, fearing his wrath for our sins, is the beginning of knowledge and discernment. It means viewing both our life and our death through the lens of God's holiness and his wrath against our sins. In other words, we need to put ourselves in the proper place. A lot of times we like to think of ourselves equal to God, not in power, but that he's my friend, he's my buddy, and we can josh around and have a good time, and yeah, God is so good. No, the reality is, is he's here, I'm here, and he allows me to worship him and know him, because if he didn't allow it, he would utterly smite me from the face of the earth because I'm so sinful. And he is so perfect. That's the reality of our relationship. So to have that happen, to to come together, to be able to know God, to worship him, to glorify him, to have a relationship with him, to be his friend, something's got to happen. Something has to happen in order for that coming together in a relationship with God. Something has to happen. And so as God's people, it means viewing our life and our death through the lens of God's holiness and his wrath against our sin. In verse 5, why should we fear in times of trouble when the iniquity or the sin of those who cheat me surrounds me? Or verse 16, be not afraid, do not fear when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. So why should I fear these things while I'm here on the earth? I, I shouldn't. Well, why not? Because the day is going to come when I will stand before the Lord and the price of my life will come due. Don't fear the troubles of this world. Instead, fear the one who has the power to take your soul. Let me say that again. Don't fear the troubles of this world. Instead, fear the one who has the power to take your soul. For no amount of wealth, no amount of abundance... No amount of riches on, from this earth will help you pay the ransom price for your sinful rebellion of God. And a ransom must be paid. So what's a ransom? Okay, well, a ransom is a payment made to release someone for punishment or slavery. There were sins in the law of Moses of which the punishment could be fulfilled by paying a ransom amount offering a sacrifice, giving money. And when that ransom was paid, the individual could then once again join the people of God in in the worship of God. But the ransom that the psalmist is speaking here is not an earthly ransom. This isn't like, okay, hey, you sinned against God, so why don't you make your check a little bit larger? That'll count as your ransom before God and give it to us as a church, and God will forgive you. Okay, that's not how it works nowadays. Maybe back in the Old Testament with offering sacrifices or paying a debt to another person. But we're talking about our souls. 
What price do you put on a soul? What price do you place on a soul? A bull, a goat, money that could be used from earthly to get out of earthly punishment, but none of that, no animal, no wealth, no riches could be used to ransom the soul when standing before the great judge, Yahweh. Gold and silver are no good in the presence of God. But let's play that game. Okay, let's, let's, let's do that. Because that's what he does. The psalmist does that. What if I could buy my way out of punishment for my sinful rebellion? Okay, we're not talking disobedience to parents. We're talking disobedience to the creator of the universe. So how much would it cost me to ransom my life? To ransom my soul? He says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. So you couldn't pay for my soul, and I can't pay for my own soul. Why? Because it says in verse 8, the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. Or to use the words of Christ, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In other words, the whole wealth and power of this world. Let's say that, okay? Mark is taken out of his life now and made the emperor of the world, and I own everything and everyone in it. Yes, I know, and everybody's all upset, right? Rightfully so. But let's just, let's just play this, this game, right? Let's just play this, this all the way through. I have the ultimate power. We would call that the Antichrist, but that's a whole other thing. I am the, the, the emperor of the world. I can do whatever I want, and nobody can stop me. And this is what he says. The whole wealth and power of this world would never be enough to ransom my soul before God. If I, created, if I, if I was the emperor of the entire creation, all of the universe, it would still not be enough. Where does the psalmist find his hope then? Not in the riches of this world, but in God, in the one whom he fears. Verse 15, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Now, what role does the psalmist play in that? Listen again, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. The psalmist is just there. He doesn't give anything to God. God doesn't receive anything from him. It's not like he shows up and God goes, oh, it's you. You're good. Go ahead. You know, you, you give me what you got. And they, oh, yeah. No, no he there's nothing the psalmist can do. But God does it all. God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, from the power of hell, from the power of the pit. So God, somehow then, because remember, a ransom has to be paid, so God pays the ransom. But how? Well, ultimately, and hopefully if you've been here long enough, you know exactly what direction this is going. Ultimately, this psalm, like all the rest of Scripture, is pointing to the event in which God did pay the ransom to release many, it says, from the wrath of God for their sins. 
And it was a costly gift. Not a gift of silver and gold, but a gift of blood. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And this is why Christ is called the Lamb of God. He is the sacrificial lamb. Whereas the lambs of the Old Testament had no choice to go forward, Christ willingly, out of love, gave himself, shed his blood on the cross to pay the ransom of many. He willingly sacrificed himself for those who put their trust and confidence and fear in God and not in the wealth and the power and the riches of this world. These are not my words. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, they're talking to Christ, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So to put our trust in the wealth of this world is the path of foolishness. It's a path that leads to eternal death, away from the glorious presence of God. But to put our trust in God through Christ is the path of wisdom, a path that leads to eternal life forever in the presence of the one who paid my ransom. There are two nearly identical phrases that point us to the main focus of this psalm. Again, remember I said at the beginning, this is not about if you're rich, then you're suddenly sinful, or if you're poor, you're suddenly righteous. The wealth of this world in the end for eternity means nothing, or even the lack of means nothing. Just look at the story of um, Lazarus and the rich man. There's two phrases, and remember what I said, when you're reading a passage and it's something is repeated, especially if in the psalm, if it's repeated very closely, if not exactly, it's probably important. Well, there's two phrases here, and it breaks up this psalm, verse 12 and verse 20. Verse 12 says this, Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. In other words, a man in his pomp is not going to remain. He's going to be dead like everything else in the world. But then verse 20 takes it a step further to explain this. Man in his pomp. Okay, so maybe I, nowadays I have to clarify this. It doesn't mean males. Man is very general for all of humanity. Every single human being. So we can't just say like, see men? Told you. No, this is men and women. Men and women in their pomp, yet without understanding, are like the beasts that perish. So it's not only that if they live in their pomp, it's that they don't have understanding. Understanding of what? understanding of God, that they don't fear God. They fear maybe death, but they have no fear of the one that they will stand before because the things of this world, the pomp and the circumstance of this world is too important. In my early days of full-time ministry, my desire, and for the most part, probably about 99% of, of 
pastors who enter the ministry for the first time, this is, this is what's on their mind. Okay, maybe that's a generalization, but everybody I've talked to has kind of had some sort of thing like this. They want to write books. They want to be invited to speak at conferences. They wanted to be the next famous pastor that everybody wants to call for spiritual advice. And, hey, will you come and talk to my church and set them right? Every pastor desires that. Well, if we know how many, how many, let's just say pastors are there in the world, and how many of them do you know? Probably maybe one or two hands. Now, how many do you know personally? Way less than that, right? I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be famous. And not realizing, I probably can't really write worth a darn, but that didn't matter because, you know, God was going to move and change people's lives. But it became, quickly became clear that my priorities were very skewed. I desired pomp and circumstance more than faithfulness to God. Now, I, I want to look back and say that I was, I, I wanted to glorify God through all of that, but to be honest, at 20 years old, <laughs> yeah, it does. my heart was more set on me than it was on God. I might have said the right words, but my heart was not there. Now, that doesn't mean that God didn't use me. It doesn't mean that God wasn't in my life. Um, and I know that because through many humbling situations, I was and I still am being placed on the crucible of sanctification. My heart is being constantly put through the fire and the impurities of my heart and my desires and my wants are being stripped away and it never seems to end. Isn't that annoying? As a Christian, it's just never ending and yet it's so good and I slowly began to realize that the pomp of this world will one day end and I will be standing for the, before the great judge to give an accounting of my life. I thought I'd, I'd enter the ministry and even if I didn't become famous, I'd be famous in my church and they would love me and they would place me on this pedestal and that's exactly what happened. No, it didn't. It was a reality of I ain't Jesus and I'm not their savior. Because even should I become famous, even should all that I desired come true, they are nothing in comparison to the one that I will stand before in his greatness and his holiness and his glory. And I can't say, see, Jesus, I was famous. And Jesus would be like, who are you? Because I'll have nothing. You and I both will have nothing when we leave this world. We will have nothing in our hands that we can give to the great judge. And yet the ransom for my life will come due. And so what can I present that will satisfy God's wrath for my sin? What can I give to him? Where in the end, nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
in Romans chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. I want to read this from the Word. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. This is what Paul writes. <clears throat> He's speaking of our sin and our weaknesses, our, our inability to actually save ourselves, our inability to pay the ransom that we owe before God, that is due for our souls. And he says this, and he's speaking to believers, not to the world, to believers. He says, for while we were still weak, that is sinful, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. If you're a believer, that is us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. No, perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, we may be willing to give up our lives for somebody that we love, somebody who's a, what we would say a good person. Would you give your life up for Hitler? I wouldn't. I, w I just wouldn't. And yet, what did Christ do? Because without taking this out of context, we're talking about sinfulness before God. We are just as guilty of sin and rebellion against God as Hitler or Stalin or anybody else that we can think of in our mind that is worse than us. We're all in the same boat before God. And Paul is saying, scarcely would we die for anybody who's bad. Maybe for somebody's good, who's good and that we like, but for sure not for anybody who is bad. But what did Jesus do? He died for those who hated him and despised him. And then verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, we have been made righteous before the eyes of God. We have been cleansed of our sin before him. And his wrath is no longer upon us. Since therefore we have now been justified by Christ's blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That is the wrath of God at the end of time. He died, Christ died. He shed his blood on the cross to cover and pay the ransom for our sins before God. And so because of that, the wrath of God does not land on us. And the penalty of that, our, our sin against him, that wrath is eternal death and death. And that was placed on Christ. Christ's righteousness was placed on us. Our, our sin was placed on him and he paid the debt. He paid the ransom that we owed. And so the day will come where every single one of us will die. Every one of us. And we will stand before the judge and we will have to offer a ransom for our souls. You, you want to do the old things, but why should I let you in? Give me what you got. I, I got nothing except the blood of your son who died for me. And I believe and I have faith, that faith that you gave me, God, the, the one that changed my heart, the one that saved me from my wrath. God, 
you did this for me. I have nothing to bring to you. But me, covered in the blood of Christ, what will you be able to present to him to save you from eternal punishment deserved for your rebellion against him? That's, that's really what the psalmist is getting at. It's not health, wealth, and prosperity. It's not the sins of the rich. Those are there. But the sins of the poor and the sins of the rich are the same before God in the sense of they all deserve death eternally in hell. We all come before him naked and barren and the only thing that will save us, the only thing that will ransom us from his wrath is the blood of Christ. And what will you offer that is more costly than the perfect life of Christ? Nothing. So if you're a believer this morning, one, with the psalmist, have confidence. What does he say? God will ransom me. God has paid the ransom for my soul. And I humbly come before him and give myself to him trusting and knowing that he will save me because he promised it. But also as a believer, as we all do probably every single day, we have to look at our own hearts and say, am I living for the things of this world? Let's make it real. Go home. Do your budget. <laughs> and look at how much everything's going to cost. And the things that we can't do because we got to pay for this or that instead of this. And you have to make those hard choices. That's, that's pretty simple. And sometimes you have to let go of those things that you want because you can't afford it. But if we put our trust in the things of this world, we put our trust in popularity or fame insta instead of Christ, and we have to be jolted. We have to be reminded as his people. Our life is not our own. Christ has bought us. He has paid the price to free us from the slavery of sin and death. And so our lives should be devoted to him. Our lives should be lived for him. And we walk away from here living a life knowing that whatever may happen, good or bad, today or tomorrow or this week, though my plans should fall apart, the day will come, I will stand before the judge and I have confidence that he will save me and let me in because he has covered me in the blood of his son. But you have to believe. Now there's more to that, but if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, that he will save you from your sins. You are saved from your sins. But if you're an unbeliever, and you're hearing these words and you don't have that confidence, that you don't believe, then you have to ask yourself, if you stand before the judge, what are you going to give that's more costly than the life of his son? What? And if the answer is, I have nothing to give, or 
because I don't have the blood of Christ on me, or to say, well, I'm going I'm to try to tell them how good I was. I have all these good deeds. They're not good enough. They're not good enough. And now you walk away from this place today. You have no excuse when you stand before God and say, I didn't know. No, Mark on, on July 24th, 2022 reminded you and told you the only way to enter eternal life with the pres- in the presence of God for all eternity is through the blood of Jesus Christ. So believe, confess it with your mouth, give him your life. He is, he is the Savior, treasure, and Lord of your life. There you go. You're saved. Now there's more to it again. There's a long process. There's sanctification. There's growing in understanding and faith and fear of the Lord. But when it comes to eternal life, only through Christ. You have no excuse now. You have no excuse. So wrestle with that. Think about that. What will you have that is more costly than the perfect life of Christ? Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Christ can save us. Father, I pray that this psalm, it resonates, God, that we, throughout this week, that we just kind of chew on it and remember it as your God's people. And when the things of this world, the troubles and the trials, wherever they may come from, Father, to remember that our worth, our salvation is found in you and not in the things of this world. Not in power and might or wealth or riches or abundance. It is in you. That should all things be taken from us, should we have you, it is enough. But God, as your people, we need to be reminded of that, especially when those hard times come. Oh God, we, we get overwhelmed by them and we need to remember that in the end, Father, you are enough. That we could take none of it with us. Our grave is empty. Unless we have your, the blood of your son, Father. Give us confidence and courage us. And I pray you would convict those, Father, who have yet to believe, who are putting their trust in themselves and the things of this world, that in the end you would change their hearts, you would save them from their sins, and they would proclaim along with us, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord Almighty. We ask these things in your name, amen. Why don't you stand with us, we'll sing our final song.